Welcome to the Trolley Stops here where we talk about real issues from a faith perspective. I am Lawrence Clark. And I'm Laurie Ann Rooker. And as we transition from Black History Month to Women's History Month, we want to have a conversation about the mother figures who have inspired us and how we can create a beloved community that Martin Luther King talks about. With this topic, there are two very special people that come to mind, Um, my grandma Nikki and my Aunt Evelyn, who are both in heaven now. And I wanted to talk about them in celebration of women's history because I feel like both of these women inspired me and shaped me into the person that I am today. I remember when I was younger, um, spending time with all my cousins, um, with me, you know, being the only child and I would go over her house over the summer and almost every other weekend really uh, just spend time with her. I remember uh, that my cousins kind of had a different schedule with school so somehow I would be on my uh, summer vacation before everyone else would so I got to play with all their stuff uh, and they didn't even know about it. Um, perhaps until now, and if they listen to this podcast, and she was just such a loving individual. Um, she definitely, you know, uh, held our family together mm-hmm. um, through all the stuff that she went through. Um, she never once complained about anything, and then the love that she gave me is just simply unmatched. And then my grandma Nikki, of course, um, she was like if empathy was a person it would be her um she was always she was always concerned about how she could help someone else it was never about her she always um she's one of the most selfless people that i know um and i just you know remember when um my dad and my stepmom first got together of how accepting of her and her husband, my grandfather, uh, were to uh, my dad and I, and how that whole and how that whole family just accepted us as their own. Um, I remember when I would be walking with her uh, when she lived in uh, assisted living, and people would ask, "Who am I? Uh, who is this person that you have with you?" And she would be like, "Oh, that's my grandson." And they would be like, "Oh, it is." And she was like, yeah, of course. Of course. Um, <laughs> you know, because, you know, we're not related by blood. We uh, we don't look alike, but, you know, family family is more than blood. And she saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and she never once let anybody or any, um, you know, perspective of anything get in the way of the relationship that her and I had. So mm-hmm. I'll remember that for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, both Aunt Evelyn and Grandma Nikki, I had the pleasure of getting together once and actually meeting and just listening to them talk was just awe-inspiring. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that I'll remember too. So th- those are just two women that really uh, inspire me. Uh, to this day. So Aunt Lori, who are two female figures that inspire you? Well, first I want to say I love that your grandma Nikki said, but of course, because I think that when we eventually live into the beloved community, the but of course, what no matter what race you are and who you're with, it's going to be like so matter of fact, like of course you can mm-hmm. tell 
people are related by the way they treat one another. So that's just my own little editorial comment about um, your grandma Nikki's statement. <laughs> but the um, yeah, so a couple people who come to mind, one is which happens to be my dad's mother, my Grammy. Um, I, I think everybody in my whole family definitely has always looked up to my Grammy who's no longer living. And it's a combination of things. I mean, she was certainly very religious and always went to church and always kept all of her traditions. Um, she um, she did all of that, and I and at the same time, I think she somehow maintained a really great sense of humor and was very accepting. Um, we used to always um, joke about how she would always see like the positive in something. We could be driving through the hardest part of the city with. Um, fences all over, and she would always say, "Oh, I bet behind that fence over there is some really gorgeous pink rose bush." She was into pink roses, and we always talked about rose-colored glasses and my Grammy. And and I liked it that some people actually started to say that I kind of reminded them of my grandmother because she was that person who was um, uh, just very upbeat and funny. And then she was accepting, like when people in our family they separated or they divorced or they did whatever, whatever. Everybody was still always welcome at my grandmother's home, and she stayed in touch with everybody, and I was grateful for that. She didn't really, to the depths of why or what and all the details and drama of everybody's life, she just let everybody in. So anyway, my Grammy is one person who has inspired me, and I think another person that I've mentioned any number of times is Harriet Tubman, when it talk about a historical figure, and I think about her a lot. This is uh, the 200th anniversary of her death. And so I think about all of the contributions that she made. I think about how brave she was to go undercover uh, as a man named Moses and, and then sneak back and forth between Maryland and Philadelphia and eventually go from Maryland all the way up to Canada, just bringing people to freedom. I just think she had a lot of courage. And I know that she happened to be Methodist. Um, so I, I love that about her. But I really love Harriet, and I think she um, encourages me to find creative ways to bring power and redistribute power. And so I, I'm really, um, I don't know, I'm grateful for her example. Um, I'm, I'm committed to myself to working on cross-cultural relationships, and it's one of my own personal goals to learn more about and to live into the beloved community that Dr. King spoke of. That is amazing. Um, and I just admire how much your grandma was so observant about nature and things around and was so welcoming, kind of like that forgiveness. Like no matter what anybody is going through, no matter, you know, what ends up happening, everyone was always welcome. And that kind of has that common thing with my grandmother and Aunt Evelyn. So thank you for sharing that. I know one of your first appointments after you were ordained was to Barbados, which was a cross-cultural appointment. How did you end up in Barbados? Was that your choice or the bishop's choice? So, yeah, the way the appointment system normally works is that you receive an appointment from the bishop. And our bishop at the time happened to be Reverend Skeet, who um, by birth is a Barbadian. I didn't think about that at all. I just knew that when I was looking for my first appointment, I felt like I really was interested in um, learning more about other cultures. I just wasn't sure what that was going to look like. And so I got a little brave. And even after they tried to appoint me to another um, place in the Anthracite District, I went in and asked the bishop directly. Um, my very first appointment 
if it would be okay for me to um, have an appointment to the South Caribbean district. I didn't know where. They didn't want to appoint me to Grenada because there was a lot of fighting there at that time. So the bishop then appointed me to Barbados, uh, which meant that I would start off with four churches and, instead of one. Mm-hmm. And But that's how it was in the Caribbean. Everybody had multiple churches. So it was it was a combination of me asking to have um, an appointment, what they call an appointment beyond the local church, which is like outside of my um, Eastern Pennsylvania conference area. So it was my request and then his appointment. Wow. And I just kind of wanted to add uh, this follow-up question too. What was it like navigating like four churches instead of one? (laughs) Was it more challenging? Did it like what I can, how could you like be at four different places at once is my question. <laughs> Sometimes I thought I talk about it like people who have four sons. I like to say it's like none of your kids like you at the same time, <laughs> but at least one of them likes you. And so that's the good thing about four instead of one. Um, the hard part about four is exactly that. Nobody goes to all of their churches on a Sunday. Like on the busiest Sunday, I would have maybe three services in the morning and then one in the evening if I got to all of my mm-hmm. services. The island wasn't that big, so mm-hmm. it would be like maybe 15 minutes to get to each one. But I didn't By get walking, to... right? Yeah, of course, by walking. <laughs> I did sometimes walk, truly. Not all the time, though. Um, yeah, so I... That was normal for everybody to have four churches. It was not normal for me, but I learned quickly that I had to learn. I had to adapt if I was going to make it. In a different part of the world, at 25 years old, living by myself, I, I wanted I wanted it to work. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so what was it like uh, being the leader of a culture that was significantly different from your own? Well, it was sometimes it was hard. Sometimes it was funny. I mean, I had to learn how to drive on the left-hand side of the road. I have mm. had times when my car was in the gas pump and it's rolling down a hill and I'm diving through the window. I mean, just a lot of things <laughs> to get used to. and. Um, you know, language, um, Barbadians speak English, but I didn't know the dialect. I didn't know what everything meant or what it was. But I, again, the Barbadian culture is a very conservative culture. So that meant that when, unless I was going for a sea bath to the beach, which is what Barbadians called it, I always needed to be dressed properly. Like they didn't like the tourists. They didn't like the people. They like in their mind, I was like, almost like, um, a government leader. So when they mm. saw me in public, I needed to be dressed nicely. I needed to behave appropriately. Um, I am not used to being in a conservative culture, so I really had to learn about that. Even the worship was very traditional, and I had to learn how to grow into that because it was it was a little it was a lot more traditional than I was. But I had mm-hmm. to learn how to to do that because I wanted to. I wanted to communicate, and I wanted to serve. And sometimes I had a, it was tricky because I had to let other people teach me, Mm. but I also Mm -hmm. had to lead. I always had to be the leader, even though I had to learn how to do that in a different part of the world and a different culture. Mm. Wow. So, and I imagine it's like, you kind of have to learn how to do two things at the same time, Um, learning the language and the culture there, and then learning how to lead with a combination of all those things too. Um, mm-hmm. Wow, that's very, that's, that's inspiring. Thank you for sharing that too. And that kind of leads me to the next question. Were there, was there anything else 
and the differences uh, that you were used to uh, and versus what you would expect while you were there? Well, I would want to say the expectations of a minister in Barbados were different in the sense that when you have four churches, people don't expect to see you every week. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you do combined things with, with a whole lot of churches together. So it is a different experience than having one church. Um, but again, it was, it was a balance. I was 25 years old. When I got there, people thought I was older than I was. I didn't tell them how old I was because basically people in my youth group were the same age as me. So I couldn't tell them <laughs> I was 25 or they would never respect me. Um, cause it was just like of the same age as the people in my youth group, like what? So, um, I just tried to look and sound together and they had a book of discipline. I didn't even know, understand it was a con- called a constitution and I didn't even know all the rules. So I was trying to learn it while I was trying to lead. And I had a couple people that I talked to privately one-on-one who would kind of coach me. Like when I was, when I made a kind of a, a sort of a mistake or I, wear red shoes when you're not supposed to wear red shoes because there's taboos about it, or you're not supposed to do this, or like they would kind of help me and preempt things that could have, you know, could have maybe made people upset, even though I didn't mean to. And I, I was always trying to edit and go back over. And sometimes things were hilarious and hysterical, but other times they were mostly, it was just a really big growing experience. Um, but it was hard for me to be in such a conservative culture um, in the sense that I I wanted to be myself, but I wanted to lead and have people's respect too at the same time. So, wow, yeah, and being that young too, um, going through all of those different changes, and I I know that was definitely a growing experience, but I'm sure that might have been you know kind of a, a scary one at times too, mm-hmm. um, where you're kind of like uncertain of you know what is the right thing to do, what is the wrong thing to do, what if I say the wrong thing. But that's truly amazing. So I was also the first female Methodist minister in the entire island ever. Wow. I know. Talking to no pressure that, there, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So you have all of that even mm-hmm. added. You're the first female. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you, you, you paved the way. Yes. I'm not sure what kind of pavement there was. But <laughs> I, heaven knows. So what led you back to uh, Pennsylvania after that? Yeah, so nobody understands why anybody would leave the Caribbean. It's like it's 87 every day and Sunday, yeah. and why would you ever leave? But believe it or not, um, it is a very homogeneous culture, and people all do. Well, I don't know if it is now, but at the time and it was. And I missed the diversity of people. I missed the diversity of experiences, the change of the seasons. Um you know, family, friends, I, I don't know what to say. I, I did, st- I was there for three years and I appreciated every bit of what I learned and I still felt like I had growing to do and I wasn't sure I could grow. Mm-hmm. I, sometimes mm-hmm. you kind of feel like something reaches it, a natural ending to its season and that's what it, right. I felt. And it's kind of hard when you feel like you're getting to that point, but I think everyone gets to that point of almost like coming to crossroads is like, what am I getting out of if I stay here? But if I go back or if I, you know, go to a new place, even though it's, you know, kind of challenging at first, um, I can't or someone can't really grow or continue. And especially if it's something that you're passionate about, that could be really 
are really challenging. And I'm sure leaving the weather of Barbados and coming back <laughs> to the weather of Philadelphia was probably one of the least uh the least favorite moment of that but mm. you know you you got to be able to grow you know mm -hmm. yeah so since we're talking about cross-cultural jobs I think this leads directly into how we navigate cross-cultural relationships and there's a, a book study we're doing right now it's called Gracism by David Anderson and he's explaining how um, we can reach out to one another across cultures and races and he says that when we stretch out to reach another person that we actually stretch the social fabric of our society and our culture, but that we also grow in unexpected ways. So I want to ask you, Lawrence, what, what is your experience with navigating relationships uh, with persons of different, a different race or culture? Yeah, I have, I'm grateful that I have the friendships that I do have. A lot of the people that I'm friends with look different than me. Uh, some of them practice a different religion than me. Um, some of the people that I work with are the same. One of my best friends, um, who's white, who I was friends with since elementary school, um, we've always had a close relationship. It doesn't matter how long, you know, we've been uh, not talking. Uh, we could just pick up the conversation right away. Um, and both of us are working full time in our in our fields. He's a mechanical engineer. I'm a teacher. So we I, I think it's like just having an understanding and recognizing and listening and practice being an active listener that helps us create that beloved community, um, you know, that Martin Luther King speaks about. And also being okay not knowing or not understanding everything about the other person too because it's not really possible to live their life i think being okay with not knowing you know some of the differences and maybe upbringing that you've that uh you may have went through with the person that you're friends with or the person that you might be in a relationship with and that keeps the friendship interesting because you keep learning about the person mm -hmm. um I have more friends of mine that, you know, come from a similar background that I do, friends that I've worked with in the past that, you know, we all still talk and we all look different. You know, our family dynamics are totally different. Some of my friends have never met each other, which is kind of weird because I'm like the link to a bunch of different people. But I've even wondered like what it would be like to get all of these people together and see like the conversation that would happen. And I think that would be a very rich and interesting conversation that I would like to hear. And, you know, speaking about Dr. King and the beloved community, that brings me to the relationship uh, between my dad and my stepmom. They have such a deep understanding of, of each other on a whole nother level that I've never seen before with two people. It was like they were made for each other. Mm. And I, I, I watched them and I just admire uh, their relationship uh, with each other, um, you know, no matter what we go through, uh, they do it together. They they talk, they listen, they talk it out when, you know, everybody disagrees. We have conversations, we have hard conversations um, through good times and through dark times. We, we talk about it and that's how uh, we've always been. Um, I remember coming going to the store um with my stepmom who's white uh and people would give us side eyes and weird looks and like you know what are you doing why are they together like 
you know, because that wasn't, you know, that wasn't um, what people were used to seeing, um, especially at the very beginning, like the early 2000s. That's when it was really bad. But now we don't really get that so much anymore because I think as years go on, the world becomes more and more open minded and it's becoming more diverse. But I would just remember stories that they would tell me when they first started dating about they would go to restaurants, they would go on the train, they would, and people would be looking at them like they're crazy, like they've never seen two people together before. Um, so, and I admired that. And through all of that, they are still together. And both of them had two significantly different upbringings. And they talk about that experience. And neither one of them really probably understand that experience because they didn't live it. But that's what keeps the relationship interesting because mm-hmm. you're constantly learning and listening about the other person. And there's no resentment on, well, you had this and I didn't, or I had this and you didn't. We, we, we kind of just work with what God gives us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that God brings people together um, for a reason. And I just love and admire that. You know, I get to see them whenever I want and how they've raised me to become who I am today. And, um, you know, we're we're going through a tough time right now, but we just, you know, continue to talk about it and every day gets better and better. So I am so totally grateful for that. Um, so you as well has have um, you've been in an interracial relationship. So how is that experience like for you? Yeah, well, I wouldn't even have the privilege of knowing you, Lawrence, if it wasn't for that relationship, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I met your Uncle Ray when uh, we were both working at uh, a psychiatric hospital in Georgia, and we each tell the story differently. I say I was a staff and he was a patient. He says he was the staff and I was the patient. <laughs> we were both on staff, truthfully, and um, uh, found a very... Um, a very gentle presence in him. He's very introverted and quiet, but funny and um, loyal, fiercely loyal. And so um, I, was, um, I was really grateful to know him. It was a time um, in Columbus, Georgia, where you didn't see people in interracial relationships, but we were uh, quiet and more private about knowing each other and then eventually moved up here to the Philadelphia area, Parkside in, in particular. And um, it was not, uh, it was just a couple of years after the KKK had come through that town. Mm-hmm. So when I heard that, it kind of wasn't sure. If Ray wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. We weren't sure what that meant. But well, we, we knew what it meant, but we weren't sure how we would navigate, especially because we ended up getting married mm-hmm. and there was some conflict in the church where I was working. And I was trying to be, it was weird, I was trying to be faithful to God and faithful to my life and what I, where I thought I was being led. I was also kind of struggling because I, I like to understand other people's perspective and I could understand people having questions of uh-huh. What are you doing? And and how is that going to be for you to be a white woman marrying a black man? And, and what's that going to, how will that be? If you have children, what will that look like for you? What will that look like for him? I know Ray had a lot of anxiety himself about um, living and being together. And he's already kind of a quiet person mostly. So that was, it was hard to figure out for him how to be as well. But I feel like 
that relationship has really defined me and sharpened me and grown me. Like I can't imagine I would be uh, nearly as um, wise or as um, maybe kind and understanding as I really am. And of course, Ray's mom, my husband's mom, sister being your mom and you, I've gotten the benefit of knowing all of you as well. Um, And then just to add to that, I think part of the beloved community for me, it's about understanding someone of another culture, respecting, Mm -hmm. um, standing in a place quietly, holding a space with them. Um, But it also means sometimes when uh, things don't go the way you expect how to be. So questions for me about how can I respect and care for someone when I'm no longer married to them. And so Mm. I have learned how to, and Ray and I have learned together how to respect each other, even though we're no longer married. How does, I still have the benefit of a relationship with my mother-in-law, with you, with your mom. I mean, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't all, it's kind of crazy. Like it doesn't, you want to talk about people raise their eyebrows and don't know what's going on. (laughs) You are my nephew and your mom, then mama, I'm calling mama Ella mama. And everybody's like, what, who? And it's just, (laughs) but now it's becoming like, it just flows off of everybody's tongue. So naturally, oh, how's mama Mm -hmm. and how's Lawrence and how's your sister-in-law. And so Again, I think that's, it's how we grow into the beloved community when we um, stretch ourselves. Yes. Yeah. And also practice active listening too. I think that was one of the first podcasts I was a guest on. We talked about that Mm -hmm. Um, and it's intertwined in everything that we do. And I think that's just the next part of healing through this tough time with the, you know, the pandemic, the past two years. Um, And hopefully we're on the downhill of that. Um, I think it, and I've said this before, I think the pandemic kind of shed light to things that we don't normally talk about, like mental health, you know, like active listening and how do you, how do you respectfully disagree with someone? Because I feel like that has gotten lost mm. through, throughout the years. And, and I, I just feel like, you know, all of our experiences and everything that we've gone to just, you know, kind of shapes us and is also how we create that beloved community too. So, and that kind of brings me to this quote from Martin Luther King that says, beloved community is formed not by the eradication of difference, but by its affirmation, by each of us claiming the identities and cultural legacies that shape who we are and how we live in the world. And I think everything that we talked about in this podcast is intertwined in that. So yeah, I thank you, Aunt Lori. Uh, for sharing your experience with walking in the Barbados and being uh, a female figure pioneer there. And I thank our listeners too. So we will see you next time on The Trolley Stops Here. The Trolley Stops Here is a ministry of First United Methodist Church in Media, Pennsylvania. It's hosted by Lorianne Rickard and our new co-host, Lawrence Clark. And our podcast is edited by Ayanda Satoli.